Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from the first epistle of John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sins. If we, say we have no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John calls us to acknowledge our sin, and he, uh, he is pretty straightforward with us. If we say that we have no sin, if you are called to confess your sin and you don't acknowledge that you do, in fact, have sin in your heart, sin in your life, then you're a liar, John says, and, and you make God a liar. You accuse God of lying. John is straightforward with us that we, we are people who are afflicted with sin. We struggle with sin. We, uh, each one of us this week has struggled with sin. And John calls us to uh, walk in the light, to receive the light of God's countenance upon our own lives. God's light exposes things that we would rather keep hidden, that we would rather keep in darkness. Uh, God is light, and if we are to be in his presence, then his light is going to expose things that we would rather hide. His light is going to expose our sinfulness. This, doesn't, this isn't told to us in order to uh, make us uh, feel ashamed or uh, to wallow in guilt, this, but rather we are called simply to acknowledge God's light and to confess, to openly confess the sin that we have committed, the sin that we've struggled with. We are called to bring out into the light uh, that which we, in our sinfulness, try to hide, try to keep in darkness. Confess your sins and do so confidently knowing that God will graciously hear your confession and graciously forgive you. God, who is gracious and just, will forgive our sins. This is this is what God's graciousness, what God's justice looks like, forgiving the sins of those who come in true confession and repentance. And so let us come this morning and confess our sins together. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. 
Well, last time I was with you, we were in John chapter 1 and considered John's prologue uh, where he introduces uh, the, uh, the logos, the word, become flesh, introduces Jesus as the eternal word of the Father who has come to manifest, to reveal the Father to us. And uh, John continued in uh, describing the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus' own baptism in the beginning of his ministry. Uh, Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan, and then uh, later in chapter 1 calls uh, the first disciples, he calls six disciples to himself. In our text this morning, we find Jesus opening his public ministry with a sign, with a sign of what his messianic career is all about. Jesus goes to a wedding feast with his disciples. The wedding party runs out of wine. It's a a serious disaster in that day for the newly married couple and their families. Uh, Not just uh, an inconvenience like we might have if if we host a party and and the drinks run low. Uh, This was a more serious disaster in their culture. Uh, Jesus' mother calls on Jesus, and after a somewhat odd exchange, Jesus acts. He saves the day by transforming water to wine. And it's, we're told it's choice wine at that. It's, it's good wine. When Jesus provides wine at a feast, he, he, he's not cheap. He provides the best wine. It's an impressive miracle, and one that, had Jesus taken open credit for it, could have gotten him invited to all the wedding parties in their area. Jesus would have been the top of the guest list. Uh, but, but John makes clear to us that this is more than just a a cool party trick. It's more than even just a great miracle, uh, more than just a, a wonder that Jesus works. John makes clear for us that uh, this is a, a sign. It's a, a particular kind of action. John tells us in verse 11, this is the first of his signs. Jesus' miraculous transformation of water to wine is a symbolic action. It's a sign, something intended to point to something else, to communicate something to those around him and to those who uh, are reading John's gospel. And John doesn't have to leave us guessing as to what this sign is pointing to, what it's meant to communicate. Through this action, John tells us at the end of this narrative, Jesus manifested his glory. This sign, in some particular way, shows the glory of Jesus. And the result of the manifestation of this sign, John continues and tells us, is the faith of the disciples, the disciples believing in Jesus. Well, in what way, then, does this event signify the glory of Jesus? It it certainly is glorious for those of us who read it, but if you pay attention to the story, there isn't much glory uh, or recognition that Jesus gets in the actual event. The servants uh, who drew the water and the disciples knew what happened, but no one else at the wedding party seems to have any idea of this great miracle that's just taken place. So how does, how does this signify the glory of Jesus? How does this point to Jesus' glory? Well, that's what we're going to consider this morning, and we'll be looking at several key aspects of Jesus' work that this sign points us to. First, we are going to consider the, uh, the theme of Jesus' hour. That's, that is uh, in Jesus' response to his mother. He tells her his hour has not yet come. And this is an important key for us to understand what's going on in this this sign, in this action. The exchange that takes place between Jesus and Mary, his mother, strikes us as somewhat odd. Uh, It can sound kind of abrupt, even 
even rude. It might sound to us like Jesus is uh, being short with his mother, being impatient or being rude. Uh, but the, the point of what Jesus is saying is, uh, is found in, uh, at the end of his statement when he says, My hour has not yet come. Jesus addresses Mary as, as woman, something if, if any of us were to walk up to our mothers and say, woman, uh, we would, you know, depending on the family, there, there would probably be some, some consequences for us. Uh, but in this, in this context, it doesn't seem that this was intended as a, a rude statement. It's more of a, a title of honor, of respect. Jesus addresses Mary as woman again at the end of his gospel, at the end of John's gospel, when Jesus is on the cross and he, uh, he asks John, his beloved disciple, to care for Mary, for his mother, uh, in Jesus' absence. Jesus addresses Mary again there as, as woman. Well, this is likely a uh, uh, wedding of one of Mary's relatives. We're told that Mary was there. Uh, it's, uh, she was uh, at the wedding as a, as a guest, and it's probably a relative of hers, and that Jesus was invited uh, as a guest as well. He's probably at this point recognized as, uh, recognized as, a, as a significant figure uh, in his own right, having been uh, publicly recognized by John the Baptist and now leading a, a small group of disciples. Uh, Jesus and his, uh, and his retinue are called to the feast as well. Well, when Mary hears the, of the shortage of wine and she brings the problem up to her son, uh, she seems to expect some kind of, some kind of action from him. And he responds, as we've, as we've seen with woman, what does this have to do with me? The uh, this, the phrase that he uses is used elsewhere uh, to, to signify that so, something is not, uh, uh, doesn't necessarily involve the person that's being addressed. Uh, what, what does this have to do with me? It could also be translated, what of you and to, and to me? Kind of an odd phrase, but it was a particular statement that's used elsewhere as well. My hour has not yet come, he tells her. Uh, whatever kind of response Mary seems to have been expecting, Jesus tells her, now is not the time. Jesus' hour in John's gospel is a, a major theme. It's the hour of his glory. Jesus is, is constantly referring to his hour that's coming. It's an, a, an impending day, an impending hour in Jesus' ministry, in his life. And it's, we see throughout John's gospel, the hour of his glory, when he's going to be glorified, publicly exalted. And as we go through John's gospel, it becomes apparent that this isn't just a normal kind of glorification, a normal kind of exaltation like, we, like the disciples might expect. And especially in the other gospels, we see uh, that the disciples' expectations are, are constantly being crushed as they, they hope for a great Davidic king, which is what Jesus is, but they, they're expecting a, a king who will come in like David and conquer Jerusalem and establish his kingdom right there and drive out Israel's enemies. That's not what Jesus' hour is going to look like, though. In John's gospel, the hour of Jesus' glory is at the same time the hour of his death. It's the hour when he's going to be lifted up and exalted, but that lifting up takes place on the cross. John's whole gospel moves towards this hour, and he's telling Mary right now, my hour has not yet come. Seemingly an odd response if we understand that Jesus knows this hour is the hour of his glorification and of his death. Mary comes to Jesus at a, a wedding party and says, the wine's run out, please do something. And Jesus responds to his mother, it's not my time to die. You know, maybe, 
maybe Mary is as confused as we are about the ex exchange that takes place here. But whatever it was that Mary is expecting, uh, she, she seems to know that even uh, that despite Jesus' statement, he's going to act. Jesus' hour is the hour of his glory and of his exaltation. And in, in chapter 7, uh, verse 30, we see uh, this referred to, starting in verse 28. Jesus proclaimed, <clears throat> Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus is waiting for this hour, and his, his enemies cannot lay a hand on him, cannot do anything about him, until this hour has come. Again, in chapter 8, starting in verse 19, they said to him there, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus' hour is coming, and until that hour, he is seemingly untouchable. The hour finally comes in chapter 12, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and in verse, starting in verse 23, Jesus answered then, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus' hour comes, and it's the hour for him to be glorified by the Father, but it's also the hour when, like a grain of wheat, he is going to fall into the earth and die and bear much fruit. In chapter 13, right before Jesus washes his disciples' feet, we read again of this hour. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then finally in chapter 17, verse 1, in the high priestly prayer, we read there, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So whatever Mary expected Jesus to do when she brought this problem to her son, it must have in some way been a manifestation. She was expecting a manifestation of Jesus' glory in a way that was not yet appropriate at this hour because the Father's will is to glorify the Son and to glorify him particularly in the hour of the cross. Jesus is going to be exalted, but the peculiar glory of Jesus is to be glorified by being exalted on the cross. His glory is the glory of self-giving love. Mary seemingly expects him to reveal his glory, to manifest his glory in some particular way. But Jesus' uh, refusal is obviously not a refusal to act because he does act. It's a refusal to, to get glory, to uh, receive glory for himself apart from the cross, apart from giving up his life. As we said, Jesus uh, addresses her as woman here, and that connects us to 
the end of John's Gospel when we hear him address his mother as a woman again, telling her that his hour, uh, his hour has come and he assigns John to care for her. Mary was asking for, uh, hoping for a manifestation of Jesus' glory. And she will be there. She will, she will see when Jesus is glorified, is lifted up, exalted on the cross. But it's not yet. Secondly, we see the uh, Jesus' glory manifested in the transformation of the water of purification. John tells us specifically how Jesus transformed water. Jesus doesn't use water that was at the tables for, for drinking or water that was already present for some other purposes. John tells us in verse, in verse 6, he takes six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. These are, this was a Jewish wedding feast, and at a Jewish wedding feast, they would need uh, water for, for purification, to, to wash themselves, to, uh, uh, not just to wash their hands so that they could uh, touch food without worrying about germs, but to, to purify themselves, uh, as was their, their custom. Israel is God's, was God's covenant people, and as such, they were particularly close to God. They were called, to, they were called out to draw near to God, and to draw near to God, one must be pure, one must be cleansed. We read in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh, and who shall, take, who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. When Israel met with Yahweh at Mount Sinai, he called them to wash themselves to prepare to be in his presence. In Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 9, And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. When the Lord comes to be with his people, his people need to be cleansed, need to be cleansed to be in his presence. That's why we confess our sins together uh, at the beginning of the Lord's service. As uh, we ascend to worship God in his presence, we, uh, we first have to confess our sins and receive God's pardon. We have to be cleansed by the grace of of Christ. What's interesting, just as a aside, that John tells us this wedding feast is on the third day. Uh, if you follow the sequence of days in chapter 1 and 2, uh, this is the seventh day that's listed, but in some sense it's also a third day. Uh, maybe the wedding took place on a, a, the third day of the week, but, but it is interesting to note that in Exodus, God comes to his people on the third day, and calls for them to be cleansed. And here, Jesus is at a wedding feast on the third day, and uh, there's water there for, for cleansing as the Lord comes into the presence of his people. It also connects us with another important third day in John's Gospel, points ahead to the third day of Jesus' resurrection. Well, this is what the Torah was all about. It was all about teaching Israel to be a people of clean hands and a pure heart a people who love Yahweh and serve him in obedient faith. Jesus comes to fulfill this calling faithfully as the true Israel, and he comes now to feast with his people as Israel's God. 
Remember, Jesus has just been washed in baptism. His baptism was, in fact, a baptism for all. He was undergoing cleansing on behalf of all of Israel. And now he brings, now he brings the feast to his people. He transforms the old covenant washings into a new covenant feast. Water to wine, from, from lesser glory to greater glory. The substance and the number and the size of these jars is significant as well. They teach us something of what Jesus is communicating, what's being signified. There are six jars, we're told six stone jars of about 20 to 30 gallons. 20 to 30 gallons, if you can picture that, it's about, uh, it would be kind of human size, you know, roughly the size of an average person. Uh, these jars seemingly represent uh, people. The jars of, are jars of stone. Stone is often associated with the Torah with God's law that's written on the tablets of stone. And there are six of them. And up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has called six disciples. These jars represent the community of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus' disciples then are to be a renewed Israel, having been washed in baptism, united to Jesus in his baptism, in his death and resurrection. They are a renewed Israel who feasts with God at his table on bread and wine. And they are the renewed Israel called to pour out that wine, just as happens with these jars, to pour out that wine, the blood of Christ, for the world. So in short, Jesus shows us here what our mission is as God's people. Our mission is to declare the cleansing, the forgiveness available in Jesus, and to invite the world to receive that cleansing and to come to the feast, to drink of the cup of blessing, to receive the body and blood of Jesus, the Lord of the feast. So what's being signified in this sign is a cleansing, a transformation. Jesus has undergone cleansing for all of Israel, for the sake of Israel. And now he brings Israel, he brings his, the new Israel, to the table to feast with God. The glory that's manifested here is an odd glory. Uh, we're told that they, uh, this was a sign that manifested his glory. And it's, it's an odd kind of glory. We don't see people standing up and uh, applauding Jesus. We don't see him taking a bow. Uh, as we said, he's, he's not, uh, this didn't spread his fame right away. This didn't uh, get him invited to all the wedding feasts because he didn't take any credit for this. As we've seen, Jesus' glory is the glory of self-giving love. Jesus is glorified by being exalted on the cross. It's a, a kind of paradoxical glory. As Paul says, it's foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. But for us who are being saved, the power of God unto salvation. And John tells us that this sign manifested Jesus' glory in a particular way. Well, after performing the sign, we might expect Jesus to step forward to thunderous applause, to gratitude from the bride and groom for having saved their wedding feast, saved them from disaster, and to instant fame. But that's, that's not what happens. Look at verse 9 through 10. We read there, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Rather than Jesus receiving thunderous applause from the guests at the feast, uh, we can instead picture Jesus and his disciples standing off in the corner and a snickering as they see the look of shock on the bridegroom's face. You know, they, 
uh, the, the master of the feast comes to the bridegroom and, and uh, is so impressed by him bringing out the best wine last and the bridegroom's probably standing, you know, may, maybe thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of the way I do things, yeah, yeah no problem. But uh, the, the disciples and, and Jesus and, and the servants, you know, maybe they're standing off uh, watching and snickering, but either way, Jesus is not taking credit for what he's done here. Jesus is letting the bridegroom be extolled, be exalted uh, in this event. Jesus has just saved the day, and yet he's happy to let the bridegroom receive all the glory. This is what the glory of the triune God is like. This is the picture of divine glory that John gives us throughout his gospel. The Son has come to reveal the Father, we're told. He's come to make manifest the glory of the Father. And yet, all throughout John's gospel, the Father is glorifying the Son, is exalting the Son. In chapter 8, we read, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom, of whom you say he is our God. So the Father and the Son are constantly giving glory to the other. Uh, Jesus comes to exalt and glorify the Father, and the Father is constantly throughout the gospel glorifying and exalting the Son. And then Jesus prophesies that his Spirit will come when he departs. And what is his Spirit going to do? What does the Holy Spirit come to do? He comes to bring glory to the Son. He comes to bring uh, we're told to bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said to his disciples. The, the Spirit comes when Jesus departs, and he brings glory to the Son and to the Father. Father, Son, and Spirit are constantly glorifying the other, receiving glory and returning glory. And this is what Jesus does for us. And this is what he equips us to do for one another. We'll close with reading the words of the Apostle Paul in, chapter, in uh, Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5, where he tells us to imitate this kind of glory, to receive glory from Christ and to imitate this kind of glory that he shows us. He says there, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for your word to us. We thank you for your Son and his coming among us to reveal you to us. Father, we thank you that in him we have fellowship with you, that in him we can come to your table and feast on the wine of the new covenant the, and the bread that is his body. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us in this feast, that we would rejoice at your table. Lord, fill us with these gifts so that we can go into the world and, and pour it out to the world that you've called us to, that we would go and spread the gospel, the good news of your Son who comes to give his body and his blood for the life of the world. Lord, we pray that throughout the rest of this morning we would be being built up as the body of your Son, that we would be edifying one another, that we would be glorifying your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, 
one God, of ages of ages. Amen. God is actively at work in our midst when we come to commune with him at his table. We may have the picture in our own minds that as we come to this table, we're the ones coming, and God's simply off to the side somewhere with his arms crossed with a pleased look of the picture in front of him. However, it's not as though we are the ones that are active in communion, and he is passive. This is a time when God is doing things. God is active, actively at work in our midst as we commute with him. He is the one who knits us together in our love through his spirit. He is the one who strengthens us with his grace so that we might be equipped to do the things that he has assigned to us to do this coming week. He is the one who teaches us to taste his goodness by, in a way that grows over time. God is at work. This is his sacrament, and we partake of it by grace and faith. This is one of the places where God works out uh, into us the things that he expects us to work out. Work out all things I'm sorry, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it says in Philippians. For it is, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is one of the places where God is working his good pleasures into us. And it's here that we can enjoy and rest in this pleasure, resolving with gladness and by faith to work it out. Invited to the table are all who have been baptized or under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. We eat and we the bread and drink the wine. We are acknowledging that we are sinners without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God. And that we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come and welcome to Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.